You guys, welcome to episode 20 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives on the well-known and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars and reality TV stars adjacent is in this episode specifically. Um, I'm your host, Troy McEady, and I just want to start right off the top by letting you know that I am recording this off of give or take four hours of sleep, okay? So I am like in a very weird place mentally, not myself. Also, I am very close to the lethal limit of coffee. I've read in multiple textbooks that eight cups is what will kill you, and I'm at like seven. I'm not even kidding. Like, I'm just white-knuckling it, and I am fighting tooth and nail to deliver entertainment for you today. I've got a really awesome couple here to talk about. By the way, the reason that I got four hours of sleep is because I couldn't stop researching stuff about them last night. Like, I I just... I was supposed to go to bed at, like, midnight, and then I started going and going and going and going, and I couldn't stop, and the next thing I knew was four in the morning, and I had to wake up early for work. So, I'm recording this on my lunch break. I am... (laughs) I'm, like so fucking exhausted but i'm also so excited to talk about this goddamn couple because like this is a good one i mean there was a reason that i couldn't i couldn't sleep last night and again like i I have this very false energy right now it's like not my own it's fully fully fueled by caffeine my heart is racing is is ablaze it's on fire um so i apologize in advance for my stuttering um my staggering over my words like I my hands are jittery my eyes are dim because they are tired I just I'm insane right I basically did like a a full needle of heroin before recording this podcast like I'm like not myself so I just want to apologize in advance but also you're so blessed to be here today we're going to be talking about Rose McGowan and Marilyn Manson can we talk I am so excited you guys I've been wanting to talk about them since we came up with the idea for this podcast but i knew that it would require a lot of attention and a lot of research because these are two very interesting people who have a lot going on and had crazy lives so i want to get right into it like i'm ready i don't know if you're ready but i'm ready i'm ready to like it's happening already by the way i'm jilted and i'm insane i'm in, i'm an insane person i can't believe i'm recording my voice right now I need to like take a breath because that was (laughs) that was just two minutes and 50 seconds. I'm just going to breathe and calm the fuck down and drink me an old an old nasty glass of ice water and uh, compose myself. I can talk at a normal pace. I can control the pitches and tones in my voice. It'll be okay. Slow down, heart. Okay, so Rose and Marilyn began dating in September of 1997. They met at the premiere of the film Gummo, which is insanely fitting for them. I don't know if you've ever seen the the, the movie Gummo, but it's fucking insane, and uh, it's perfect for these two. Um, they got engaged on February 12th of 1999, and they broke off their engagement in January of 2001. They were known in the late 90s and the early 2000s as a sort of like rocker it couple, and they received a ton of media attention for 
their strange relationship, their fashion choices, their red carpet appearances. Yes, of course, we're going to talk about the VMAs. Calm the fuck down. Of course, it's why we're all here. Let's be honest. And um, yeah, this was a super, super, super hot exciting couple at this time this was like a couple that everybody was talking about and everybody had an opinion on and they just seemed weirdly perfect for each other but like it's one of those couples you would never place you know what i mean you would never place them together but it all just sort of came up roses you know and uh i also by the way i plan on making a very random and weird but necessary comparison between Marilyn Manson and Kanye West before this episode is over. Maybe you already know where I'm going to be going with it um, by me mentioning the red carpet, but yeah, I'm excited. I hope that all my <laughs> my hours of not sleep and also hours of staying up late and finding out all this shit for you pays off. I hope that you enjoy this. I very much so enjoyed uh, researching all this stuff and like there's just a lot to get through. There are cults, there are religious cults, there are, there's just so much going on. So we're going to start today with Rose, because of the two, I feel like she's maybe the easiest to kind of delve into. There's a lot to navigate with Marilyn Manson that um, I don't even know if I'm equipped to navigate for you, but we'll see. So the year prior to meeting Marilyn Rose was kind of settling into being a well-known actress after appearing in Scream, obviously, in 1996, and she spent a really large portion of the 90s doing these sort of low-budget, independent, like, art house films, um, and I'm just going to start right off the top by mentioning, I don't know if you know this or not, but Rose was a member of the Children of God sex cult, and her father, Daniel McGowan, ran the Italian chapter of the church. So if you're unfamiliar with the children of God, if you've never seen, I mean, there's YouTube documentaries, there's a Netflix documentary about them right now. There's a million really interesting articles on the internet about them and different families that have escaped and all these different things. Um, They've now gone by like nine different names and this was a cult started in the mid late mid to late sixties by a man named David Berg And uh, originally, the church was started on the ideals of evangelical Christianity and free love. So, like, the free love movement of the late 60s and just pure fucking batshit crazy evangelical Christianity. Um, They've always sort of been known also as one of those churches that, you know, they'll stand outside like a Sears hardware with, like, pamphlets. And I guess, I mean, this is like the 90s, so it would have been like a circuit city or something. Um, They're always trying to brainwash people into joining. That's like 80% of the church's belief is, you know, pandering and trying to get people to take pamphlets and stuff. And uh, the church has been labeled by the FBI as a sect since the 70s. Um, They have literally hundreds and I'm sure hundreds of thousands of uh of child, you know, public child abuse cases and and scandals and all these different rape allegations and things that have gone public. Um, promiscuous sex is a huge factor in the church. The leaders and the followers believe that it's an act of worship, and you know you're also forced at a very young age to start being sexually promiscuous. Um, you look at religions like polygamy and things like that, where girls are forced to you know marry their brothers and and fathers and uncles at 10 and and nine years old. And this is something that's not very different. It's just, it's much more seated in sex and there's no, there's no, um, there's no false shield up in like, 
these people are unapologetically promiscuous. It's the basis of the religion. It's what the whole point of it is, is that they, they believe that sex is how they connect to God. And it's your right. It's your duty as a human to, to just fuck as much as you can. And it's horrifying. I mean, it's, it's a, again, it's a way for these men to trap women and to trap children and to sort of live out all of their worst, darkest, disgusting things that sort of like are embedded in them that they can't escape. And then they brainwash people into thinking that it's how they should live. And it's really sad. And like I said, the duty of women in this church is really to just use their bodies to seduce men into the religion. Um, they're taught from a very young age to use sex as a way to proposition people and to join in the church. Uh, there's a woman named Deborah Davis, who is actually David. She's actually the, she's the daughter. His name is a little, a little tongue twisty for me, but she's the daughter of the guy who started the church. And um, she wrote a book a few years ago called Children of God, The Inside Story. And in it, she calls it a worldwide prostitution network. Um, I have a quote here from her book. She said, the law of love, which, by the way, is a principle of the church created by her father. The law of love, I'm sure you can sort of figure out what that means, is a doctrine that's meant to justify and conceal sexual exploitation. It's made to make other people feel obligated to give up their bodies to others, so-called sexual needs. That your body is not your own, and you're supposed to give it up to God. So, members of the church are encouraged to allow their children to... Um, I'm sorry, to not allow their children to attend school. They're, you're not supposed to really fraternize or socialize with people that are not in the church. That sort of goes against the beliefs of the church. And adult members are told, you know, basically not to work. Um, they live in communes with 10 roofs and they have, you know, up to nine or 10 families sometimes living in these little huts. Um, you know, their lives basically revolve around preparing for the apocalypse because that's what the basis of this entire religion is, um, is preparing for the end of the world. And that was basically David's worst fear was that, you know, the world was going to end, the apocalypse was going to come. And if you weren't a member of his church, then there was no way that you would be able to protect yourself. That was the only way that you would be able to stay safe, um, was to have, in, in ridiculous amounts of sex with strangers and rape children. So clearly, like, just a completely fucking batshit crazy, disgusting psychopath. Not that much da different than, like, a, you know, L. Ron Hubbard or all these other men that have started religions like this, you know, in the 60s and 70s that were just ways to sort of manipulate and brainwash people who all had a very similar way of thinking at the time and were, easy, you know... It was easy to brainwash people at that time in ways like this. People who were sort of looking for something new, looking for a new belief system, trying to find some way to sort of exist like off the beaten path. And, oh, I know, I just created a church where you have to literally have sex with me constantly. Oh, how ironic. Um, the Phoenix family were also very well-known members of the church growing up. I mean, they kind of brought this church to the forefront as far as like mainstream like Hollywood media goes. Uh, River was very open about the fact that he, you know, lost his virginity at age four. And he said in an interview right before his death that he wished he, you know, would have waited to make love, but he didn't really have a choice in the matter. And he also said that he didn't really count that as his first time. And he does block it out as, 
you know, sort of a non a non memory. You know, he was celibate from ten to fourteen, and he was also very open about the fact that he had a lot of disdain for the church. Um, he, you know was quoted as saying that it ruins lives and it ruins families and it disturbs children and it rips families apart. I mean, the Phoenix family was pretty open about the fact that this, this church really like fucked them up and you know, they all had a lot of issues. Like the Phoenix family was not okay. They were like all very, it was a dark family. I mean, they are still, I'm saying was as if they all, I mean, they're all, Phoenix is the only one that is no longer with us, which is super sad. I mean, he died so young and he had so many demons to be such a young person. It's just like really sad. Um, but Rose has been pretty open about the fact that she was somehow able to avoid any sort of sexual abuse as a child. I don't know if it was because, you know, her dad was a leader of a sect of the church in Italy. Um, but she was somehow able to avoid that whole thing of like having to use your body. But nonetheless, I mean, I can't imagine the other ways that she was abused just because she somehow avoided being able to have sex with a bunch of men at three years old. Um, as a teenager, Rose ran away from home and uh, she was taken in by a group of drag queens in Portland, Oregon. Um, I have a quote here from the New York Daily News that she gave about her time as a runaway. She said, at the age of 13, when I was a runaway, I was taken in by the most amazing drag queens in Portland, Oregon. We didn't always know where our next meal was coming from, but there was always so much camaraderie and love. Not to mention, those girls could paint a face, and I learned how because of them. Rose emancipated herself from her parents at age 15, and then moved to L.A. to pursue her career as an actress and... The rest is history. Um, she made her first film appearance in Encino Man. Then in 1995, she starred in The Doom Generation, which was the film that sort of initially got her a lot of attention from critics. Um, she won an Independent Spirit Award for that role. And, you know, Scream was obviously her big, huge, giant breakout role. But uh, The Doom Generation was what I think got her the part of, of Tatum. Um, so she was, again, like I said earlier, sort of straddling the fence of being... Very well-known, but also not very well-known at all. You know, she had this, but she always sort of straddled the fence in that way in her career where she couldn't really be boxed in as being mainstream, you know, or not mainstream. You know, she wasn't like a full Parker Posey, but she also wasn't a full, like, Rachel Lee Cook. You know what I mean? She was just sort of in between as this, like, really tough, like, raven-haired, almost kind of, like, leading girl but also like a bad girl you know it was a, it was a strange sort of juxtaposition between all the different boxes that she did fit into because she fit into so many but also none of them at the same time which is like what's so interesting about rose mcgowan um i also read too that when she was uh when she was cast as tatum in the movie scream in 1996 she you know initially she got the part and they loved her and they're like okay great like we you know, we can't wait to work with you, blah, blah, blah. And she had this really terrible manager who was, like, just known for, like, doing really bad business deals. And <laughs> I read this uh, this article about how when she got the part, you know, they called her and they offered her a lot of money, a lot more money than you would expect for being a girl who basically nobody knows and you're about to start in this big, big blockbuster, you know, horror film. And her manager called the, called the studio back and... 
and was like extremely aggressive, really fucking rude, and and like basically ma- demanded this like insane fee that like I don't know Jennifer Lawrence would get now, you know what I mean? Like something completely ridiculous. So they got pissed. And they loved her so much that they still wanted her to be in the movie, but they made her come back and test for the role again, and they cut her pay completely in half. So, like, she got fucked, but in the long run, it was all meant to be, baby, because I'll tell ya, I mean, can we talk for a second about Scream? I mean, should, is this the moment that I'm allowed to now just, like, ramble about the effect, the personal effect that that movie has had on my life? So... I'd like to just, I guess, tell you about my Scream experience, if I could. Because I know we all have one. We all have a, a Scream experience. I went to see Scream. I guess I should start by letting you know that I was, like, not shielded from inappropriate movies as a child. I was, but my mom made a slip up. She took me to the movie theater once to see a movie called Radio Flyer. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Radio Flyer is a drama about a an abusive dad, an alcoholic father who abuses his children. And I was like five, maybe. (laughs) I was really young. And um, obviously based on the title, I think we had just like gone to the theater. Also, by the way, had a teen mom. So I'm not really sure what her thought process was anyway. But, uh, you know, we went to the theater. I think she was like, let's just find like a movie that looks kid friendly and we'll just see it. And based on the name you would think radio flyer would be a movie about like kids like building a fucking treehouse with the radio flyer or something but no it was about an abused an abused kid and his brother um and their relationship with their dad and i remember like one of my earliest memories is like i was literally standing on the seat because the theater was like fairly empty my mom was like horrified but there were enough people in there that it was like embarrassing still you know what i mean and i was just completely spellbound by this movie like i was like this is some deep shit and it's got your boy thinking about different things like i was affected and we left the theater i will never forget we went to olive garden after because that's what you did after a movie in the 90s and I got some bow tie pasta with some red marinara sauce, and I gave my full Siskel and Ebert review standing in a booth. Like, I was obsessed. And from that moment, like, I, I loved children's movies, and I, I still loved kids' movies, and I loved cartoons, but, like, your boy had a taste for the dark side. You know what I mean? Like, I had dipped my toe in, like, the, the, the deep, deep waters And I was ready to dive my whole body in. Like, any movie that was R, I was like, give me, give me more. Give me more. Give me, give me. It was never enough. I just wanted more. And my mom couldn't stop me at that point. I'm not kidding. Like, I'm not joking. I used to, like, sit upstairs in my grandma's house because she had, like, the craziest cable package ever in the 90s. And I would watch Basic Instinct and, like, all these insanely inappropriate movies. But... In my opinion, and this is just me, I think that it makes a person, I think it's better to expose your children to like sex scenes and and drug use in movies and just kind of like let them see all the things because by the time they turn, I'm not kidding you, by the time I was in like middle school, seeing a sex scene in a movie was so fucking old, fucking old trick to me. It was like old hat. Oh my God. Like I had watched another nine and a half weeks, like 13 times by then. My favorite movie was Ghost. Like, I was 
I mean, I was just like on a completely another level than like the kids in my grade that had never seen one or, you know, really had never gone to a, a, a movie theater pre before being 13 to see a PG-13 movie. I mean, those were like the weird, I'm sorry, I'm sure I'm going to offend some people, but those were like the very sheltered kids that were affected very deeply by inappropriate things, by like cuss words and like they were the most immature children you know what i mean and i'm not the, i'm not like trying to toot my own horn but i'm just saying like i was already sort of over it by then so i you know i come from the the belief of just throw them in the pool and see if they can swim that's i mean i, I am i am a self-proclaimed tiger mom i pull no punches when it comes to disciplining children and the same thing goes for teaching them life lessons how are they ever going to know if they don't see it at a young age i mean I'm not saying that you should, I'm like going off, I'm not saying that you should like go take your kid to see like, I don't know, fucking human centipede, obviously have some discretion and like be a good parent, but like, it is what it is, you know what I mean, a sex scene isn't gonna kill your under 13 year old tween, they'll be fine, trust me, like everything will be okay. By the way, I think also the more you shield your kids, the more they want to experience crazy shit because they're so, it's in our blood to like want to rebel and figure things out, especially when your hormones are pumping. So a surefire way to end up with a teenage daughter who's pregnant, if you want a Janelle in your life, shield her from inappropriate movies her entire life. I promise you, the minute she sees a sex scene, she'll want to do it. Do you know how many friends I had that like got fingered in middle school be specifically because of the movie Fear? Had never done it before, but were like, I'm like, they all were like, literally, I'm ready to get fingered like this week. Like, let's go out this weekend. Let's go to the mall. See if there's any hot guys at the food court. I'm trying to get finger banged on a fucking roller coaster to like the soundtrack to like Wild Horses. Honestly, like, I, that's my belief system when it comes to raising cheerwins, and it ain't gonna change. Um,. <laughs> So I went to see Scream with my dad. I was super young. Um, if you do the math, I mean, Scream came out in 96 and your boy's 29. So like I was definitely in kindergarten. Um, and that was, a, like I said, a really good representation of who I was as a child. Like that to me was like a normal Friday. And at that point, like I said, the floodgates were opened at a very young age. I was literally obsessed with horror films. Uh, I would watch horror movies every almost every single day if it wasn't scream it was like nightmare like the original nightmare on elm street actually all of them to be honest with you i loved halloween friday the 13th like the old like the good 80s classic horror villain movies i was like those were my boys like we would give dap when we saw each other me and freddie were like fucking boys i'm not even kidding so i was like super into this and i remember looking over at my dad and i was i saw him like curled up in the seat he was really terrified I was binge eating popcorn, probably choking on the kernels, and I remember just being forever changed and enchanted by that film. Like, the powerful images that were appearing in front of me changed my life. And I'd say pretty much anybody that you talk to in my family can tell you that Scream became a very unhealthy, as I like to say, unsavory obsession for me. I really became obsessed with this movie in a way that was, like, not okay. I, I just, I really loved Scream. Um, and I loved it because it was just so unique and it was original for its time. You know, the crazy thing was I loved all the movies mentioned in Scream at that point. Like I said, I loved Nightmare on Elm Street. I loved all of Wes Craven's films. So to hear like 
Freddy Krueger be mentioned in that film and for them to sort of take you out of the movie in that way where like you're used to sort of coping with a horror movie in a very specific way. You look for all the beats, you look for all the cliches, you know how they'll end, and that's how you kind of keep yourself like, I'm not scared because I know this girl's running and she'll trip over a branch and she'll fall and then she'll get killed and she'll her boobs will pop out. Like, that's a safe space. But when a movie comes on and they're making fun of those things, you're like, huh? <laughs> like, hey, wait a minute. You're not supposed to know that that happens. Like, you're not supposed to be making fun of... You are the blonde girl that falls with big boobs. Why are you making fun of her? It was, like, a very sort of, like, mind-fuck situation. I mean... I mean, especially at the point where, like, I'm looking at this movie thinking, okay, cool. So, like, Drew Barrymore is my final girl. I can get down with that. We all know how I feel about Drew. Very excited. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm so excited to watch Drew for an hour. Like, get it, girl. Love your wig, love that, like, fucking crew neck sweater, love those chinos, love that blonde, insane wig that you're wearing, love Jiffy Pop, like, all of it for me was great, up until Drew died within the first three minutes, and I was like, oh, again, completely took you out of it, and it felt unsafe, the movie at that point felt like it couldn't be trusted, and that's, (laughs) that was my journey with Scream. I would watch it regularly. I would talk about it all the time. And I still do. I talk about it pretty, I mean, a few times a week, something about Scream comes up in my life. And like, I mean, can we talk about Rose's death in Scream? Like, can we fully talk? In my opinion, one of the most important, memorable, iconic, <laughs> never the same, like, <laughs> earth-shattering world-changing like christians became became non-christians non-christians became christians we all became children of god like a moment in pop culture history i've always had a really weird relationship with that death scene because i love it more than i can put into words but also hate the fact that tatum dies because i want her to be reoccurring so bad i want them to at least mention tatum Because Dewey acts like he never even had a fucking sister. According to Deputy Dewey, he's been an only child his entire life. He's never showed any sort of remorse for his sister's death. Having this, like, gruesome death. We've never gotten, like, a take on her parents and how they felt about it. It was just very sort of like, okay, Tatum died. That's not enough for me. She was too influential for it to be a one-done, wham-bam, thank-you-ma'am situation. Now, Rose did have to dye her hair for the role of Tatum, and I read this really funny quote that she gave to Entertainment Weekly um, during the anniversary of the first Scream. She said, They cast Nev, and as film rules go, you can't have two people that have the same hair color, especially dark. I hated that color, but it was perfect for the role. It was like every plumber wanted to date me with that hair color. I immediately went down in the social strata of dating. For a soci- from a sociological standpoint, it was actually pretty fascinating. Any guy that I liked wouldn't give me the time of day, and anybody who had a jacked-up pickup truck was all over me. It was actually hilarious. And she also mentioned that, as a lot of people, I'm sure you probably know by now, the original title for the movie was Scary Movie, and uh, she protested the name change when they, you know, when they told the cast that it was going to be called Scream, and she said... The original title was Scary Movie, and I thought, and I was really mad when they changed it. The cast had, and the, well, the cast and crew 
got together for a wrap dinner, and we all got a bottle of wine. I think everybody drank his or hers, but I didn't. I still have mine, and it does say, to this day, to the cast and crew of Scary Movie. She goes, I knew someday eBay was was coming. Funny. Fucking Rose, man. Give this girl a microphone. Like, literally give... Why does Rose McGowan not have a podcast? Um, Rebecca Gayhart was um, supposed to actually play Tatum originally. She auditioned for the role, and they ended up giving it to Tatum because they felt like her sort of, like, bitchy, uh, like, spunky attitude was exactly what they wanted for the role. You know, Tatum was supposed to be sarcastic and sort of, like, dry... Now, Rebecca Gayhart did, however, get to play the bitchy sorority sister, uh, potential murderer, mur- potential murderer in Scream 2, along with Portia de Rossi. And, uh, she also starred in Urban Legend, ironically, um, which was a direct copy of Scream and a shittier version with shittier plotline and worse acting, but I still love that movie. Um, and then Scream was also, I mean, it was obviously insanely su- successful. It made a shit ton of money, totally propelled Rose into, you know, a, a, a sort of facet of her career that I don't, I don't think she ever would have saw for herself or that anybody can kind of predetermine. Uh, the movie made $173 million and it broke a record as the highest grossing slasher film in U.S. history. Scream is also responsible for uh, revitalizing the horror genre of the 90s when most people, I mean, most critics and most people that were going out and seeing films at that time would have told you that that was like a dead a dead genre. All of those movies were going straight to DVD and Scream completely revitalized it. And I mean, since then it's kind of been, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of steadied along. You know what I mean? We've, we went through an era of like really great horror films at that time, especially like teen slasher films. Those are my favorite. And, uh, it's been a while. I mean, since I've seen like a really great, like just old school fucking down and dirty running with no bra slasher film like i really love those kinds of movies um but that was just such a great era and we have scream to thank for that now um i think would be a good time to get into the marilyn manson of it all born brian warner and raised ironically in a similar lifestyle to roses in a very cult-like religious family uh he was a member of a family who they were Christian. Um, he went to like a sort of evangelical Christian uh, school that taught children how to spiritually prepare for the apocalypse. So um, very ironic. <laughs> it's not often that you meet your soulmate, and they also were raised uh, handing out path- pamphlets at Circuit City, trying to teach people about the apocalypse and their impending doom. Um, and he's mentioned in interviews and stuff that he suffered extreme brainwashing and he was surrounded by adults who used fear tactics to scare children into sort of not steering away from the church. And uh, this sort of like Bible thumping lifestyle and the fear of what was instilled in him at a very young age was what eventually led Brian down the path of self-discovery that would eventually end up in him becoming Marilyn Manson and rebelling against the church and using, you know, religious, um, sort of religious imagery and all these sort of religious tones in his music and in his, his, his art and in his look, um, in his autobiography, he wrote, I was thoroughly terrified by the idea of the end of the world and the antichrist. So I became obsessed with it, watching movies like the exorcist and the omen and reading prophet, I'm sorry, prophetic books, 
like Centuries by Nostradamus, 1984 by George Orwell, and the novelized version of the film Thief in the Night. Now, the band Marilyn Manson was formed in 1989 with the original title Marilyn Manson and the Spooky Kids. The band came up with the concept of naming each member of the iconic, and each member of the band with an iconic female sex symbol's first name, and then an iconic serial killer murderer as the last name, hence the name Marilyn Manson, which comes from Marilyn Monroe and Charles Manson, of course. Um, the year prior to meeting Rose, Marilyn, I mean, he had just released their second album, Antichrist Superstar, which was hugely critically acclaimed i remember being young and this album just being like such a huge fucking deal and everybody talking about marilyn manson everybody had an opinion on marilyn manson whether it was good or bad or confused you know if it was about him terrorizing the youth or whatever it was like he was such an important figure in the early 90s um, also, music critics cite this album as being the definitive force behind ending the reign of grunge over the music industry in the 90s. Um, there were also reports that the recording of this album was really long and grueling and almost broke up the band. Um, the shit that I read about this was completely fucking insane. Merlin has since talked about the process of recording this album in interviews and stuff, and he's stated that the band dealt with extreme sleep deprivation nearly constant drug use so they were either high or getting high or going to get high at all times um there was sleep deprivation oh i already said that sleep deprivation and he mentioned sticking sewing needles under his fingernails and cutting himself to deal with the stress of finishing you know trying to finish the work um daisy brokowitz who was a founding member of the band <laughs> he gave this interview about you know being bullied by the band while recording he mentioned uh you know, being shut out of the recording processes a couple times and them seeing him on the outside sort of, like, begging to be let in. Um, you know, he, like, he said that they took his four-track four, his four track recorder that he used to, like, record their first album and they melted it in a microwave just to be mean. Um, they took his Fender guitar and, like, there was, like, a recording, pro like, a recording session where they were like, okay, look, um... You're not doing it right, so we're going to come in and help you, okay? And he was like, all right, boys. I'm, like, picturing him as, like, the Butters from South Park of the group. So he's like, all right, guys. So they, he, like, go in, and they, like, pretend that they're going to help him, and they literally take his guitar in front of him and smash it on the ground. And his guitar was, like, a gift to his dad that had, like, passed away or something. Um, his dad had, like, given it to him as a child, and they took it and smashed it just to, like, literally be mean and, like, fuck with him. They also, by the way, said, and that was Trent Reznor that did that from Nine Inch Nails. He smashed his guitar in front of his face and, like, laughed. And then um, they also threw him out of a window, a two-story building, uh, just to, I guess, boys being boys. I, I don't know if that's the kind of thing straight men do when they get together and, and uh, scratch each other's balls, but I'm I'm horrified by that information. Um the singles from this album included The Beautiful People, Iconic, and uh, Tourniquet. Um, the album went on to sell, let's see, what did it say? It debuted at number three on the Billboard Top uh, Hot 200, and it sold 200, I'm sorry, 2 million copies in the U.S. The album has since gone on to sell over 7 million copies, and it's one of the most successful albums of that time, especially like in the rock genre. Super important, super influential. 
I don't think I really need to like go into a whole bunch of detail as far as why I wasn't so much of a Merlin Manson fan myself, but I really much, very much so understand the fact that he was an influential member of society. And, uh, you know, he, he was a big deal at that time. Like I, his artistry, especially now as an adult, I understand so much more than I did back then. At that time, I'm going to be honest with you. If you didn't have like a belly chain or a belly ring and abs and blonde hair and like sketcher platforms, I didn't have any time for you in my life. Unless you were like working a multicolored weave and performing songs about like heartbreak, ain't nobody had really had time for that. You know what I'm saying? So like Merlin Manson was not like in my lane. I was not checking for Merlin Manson and he wasn't checking for me. He was not pandering to me or trying to cater to me. You know what I mean? I was like checking to see if he was on TRL every week to make sure I didn't watch. Like I was just like not into Marilyn Manson. Um, but again, I understand his artistry, especially now I appreciate the fuck out of him. And you guys, I hate to cut you off, but at this point, I think you know the drill. You've got to be a Patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode. So go to patreon.com slash ebpsychos at that point you will uh be asked to donate and then when you donate at this level you'll get this podcast you'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week you'll get liz bentley's feathers in my hair which is the teen mom podcast um you'll get me and molly's uh britney and kevin chaotic special you'll get all the stuff that molly does exclusively through patreon it's well worth it. And also, if you're not a member of our Facebook group, go to mollyandthepsychos.com. It'll take you straight to it. And uh, all we do all day and all night is talk about reality TV. It's super fun. So, like I said, patreon.com slash ebpsychos and mollyandthepsychos.com. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.